Welcome to the AT Parenting Survival Podcast, where you get help and guidance through the chaos of parenting a child with anxiety or OCD. This show is for educational purposes and is not intended to replace the guidance of a qualified professional. Here's your host, child therapist, Natasha Daniels. Well, hello there, and welcome to another episode of the AT Parenting Survival Podcast. How are you doing? I hope you're doing well. I hope things are going okay. Today, I want to talk to you about something that I think we can all relate to, try to find topics that I think will resonate with all of us. This is one that I think we all struggle with. How often are we prematurely rescuing our anxious kids or rescuing our kids with anxiety or OCD? I didn't put OCD in the title because it's just too much of a mouthful, but I'm talking about rescuing our kids before they need rescuing. So I'm not talking about rescuing our kids when they're sinking. That's a totally different podcast. This actually came about because of something I saw during my walk. (laughs) So I'll tell you that whole story uh, because I think it's interesting to see where this came from, this idea of this podcast topic, because what I saw was an example of that. And it's just interesting to watch how people parent when it's not you. (laughs) And I'm not judgy at all. I'm like beyond not judgy because I am so human and I I do these things, but I have so much more clarity when I see it and it's not me. (laughs) Don't we all though, right? So we're going to talk about this. We're going to talk about it in a way that's going to help you not make you feel bad. So I'm going to explain to you how we prematurely rescue our kids because you may not be aware that you're even doing it. So I'm going to talk to you about that, like just kind of cluing you into the things we subtly do that don't allow our kids to have an opportunity to grow. And I'll explain what I mean by that in a minute. And then also how how we can pull back a little bit and why we should pull back, how it's helpful. And I'll talk about all of that in a second. So before we get started, I do want to say thank you to NoCD because this podcast is sponsored by them. NoCD offers affordable, effective, convenient therapy. They're available in the U.S. and outside of the U.S., which is really important because we need more services globally. And you can schedule your free 15-minute consultation to see if NoCD is the right fit for you and your child, just go to treatmyocd.com. That is treatmyocd.com. They've been a godsend because I've had so many people in my AT parenting community looking for a pediatric OCD therapist. In the past, I would have to say, I don't know, you know, there's no one in your area. And now I'm just like, did you contact NoCD? Like that's the first place to start because most of the time they have at least one or two, if not dozens of providers in the area. So check them out. Okay, let's talk about this premature rescuing that we all sometimes do, myself included. Okay, so I want to tell you how this came about. So for those of you that listen to the show regularly, you know that I go and I walk once a day. (laughs) And I don't do it for my health, although, I mean, I think it's really helpful. It's a good thing to do. I actually do it to reset. I'm finding that just clearing my head 45 minutes, two mile walk. I walk really slow and I live in the desert. So there's like these hummingbirds and there's javelina, although they like, they came and bulldozed the side of my trail where the javelina were living. And it was like so upsetting to me because I thought, where are the pigs going to (laughs) go? Does anybody think of the pigs when they do this? I didn't care as much about the coyotes, but I really felt for the pigs. So anywho, that's what's going on on my desert trail. But as I was walking, there is an area where there's a park and I'm not 
going to tell you the story in judgment of this mom because I have been this mom and I still am this mom a lot of the time. But it was interesting to watch this play out in front of me. So there was this mom and she was walking with a baby. So the baby was probably like 18 months old and a toddler. And the toddler was probably about four. And behind her, a few feet, I guess people they had been playing with was an older man, like a grandpa type. And he had two kids. And the two kids looked to be about, I would say, four each. So just so you can, you know, see the scene here. And so they're walking, they're walking away from the park and they're walking towards the gates through this trail. And coming down the trail is a person who had two dogs on a leash. And these were really tiny, little, fluffy, cute dogs. And the mom saw this dog, saw the dogs, and she quickly picked up her baby and kind of held the baby and looked protectively towards the dogs in, a, in an anxious sort of way. And then what was interesting is the older toddler, who was probably about four, saw the mom's reaction as well and then grabbed the mom's legs and hugged the mom's legs and hid behind her. And what I found interesting about this is like non-verbally, she was conveying all this anxiety to her kids about these two little dogs who were on a leash. Uh, Now, we don't know the backstory. It's possible that the baby has like an intense fear of dogs. But the baby hadn't even seen the dogs yet, but felt the mom's energy and anxiety when she swooped her up and protected her like that. So it was like a a premature rescue in the sense that the mom was anticipating possibly. I obviously don't know because I don't know this woman, but she might have her own anxiety around protecting her kids, or she might have known that her kids are deathly afraid of dogs, or maybe the kids had bad experiences with dogs and she wanted to preemptively protect them. What is even more interesting is that as they were walking, the older toddler, who was like four, was watching this grandpa type who did not pick up his two four-year-olds and was just holding their hand. And the two four-year-olds were kind of looking at the mom and the baby and looking at their like responses and trying to make sense of why that whole thing looked very anxious and then was looking at these cute little dogs. And then the other interesting thing is the older toddler of the mom was staring at these other two four-year-olds in awe of their non-reaction. And so, I mean, and this was all like in a 30-second snapshot. This is what happens when you have a therapist's mind. <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is why I can't rest because my brain is taking all this information in. But I'm finding it fascinating, not judgy. I'm just like, look at all this that's going on. The grandpa is teaching these four-year-olds that there's nothing to be afraid of by his stoic response, you know, and, you know, I'm going to stereotype because it's not always true, but kind of like a male response of like, you know, shake it off, whatever, not always the case, but it just kind of had that feel to it. And the mom was maybe very tuned into her kids so much so that she was preemptively protecting them, which was actually creating more anxiety because you could tell by the older toddler, you know, that she started to hide behind the mom's legs based on the response. So there was a lot to learn from this experience, and it made me start thinking as I'm walking, because I often don't know what I'm going to talk about with you guys unless I saw something in the AT Parenting community. A lot of times they can actually, members of the community, this is my membership community, they can go into the forums and they can actually suggest a topic. So a lot of times my topics come from them, but often I don't know what to talk about. I'm like, and so I wait to get an idea as I walk in my desert. 
And this was just spoon fed to me. I was like, oh my gosh, how often do I do this? So it started off with more of a me thing. Like, how often do I do that? I've done that so much in the past. And it's so hard to not preemptively like rescue your kids when you know that they're going to be triggered. Now, I'm not talking about dogs. I'm talking about in general. How often do you step in and before your child is even about to face plant, metaphorically, you can foresee it and you prevent it from happening? Now, you might say, well, Natasha, like, I know it's going to happen and it will happen if I don't preemptively snap, you know, get in there and fix it. And we'll talk about that in a second because, yeah, you're probably right. A lot of the times they do face plant and we're like, preventing them from a lot of pain. And I'll talk to you about why that's still not really serving them and helping their anxiety. But I want to continue on this little narrative first about this woman. And so then I started thinking about my dog. (laughs) Stick with me here. I'm not comparing dogs to kids. So don't message me and tell me that's horrible to compare dogs to kids. But it's, it's almost like another life lesson. And I do feel like We can get these life lessons. I feel like I get life lessons from everything. I'm walking and I can get life lessons from birds. (laughs) I'm a weird person. But things in life as they unfold, situations in life as they unfold can teach us. Everything can be a learning experience if we allow it to be. And so this situation I'm about to talk about with my dog is another learning experience. I'm not comparing apples to apples, but, you know, apples to Ruby, my dog. (laughs) She was a rescue. And this is very much related to what I'm talking about. So stick with me. She was a rescue. And so she had a family and she was about two years old. And I don't know what happened, but they didn't like her and her dog, her other dog friend. And they abandoned them in the streets and they were quickly picked up. And then they were put in foster homes. They were in like maybe two foster homes. And when I met Ruby, she was in a trailer with maybe like 10 other dogs, a goat, and like maybe a donkey. Like there were a lot of wildlife (laughs) in that house and they were coming in and out. And Ruby came, you know, she was running with the rest of the dogs and she'd run into my lap and we're like, we will take her. She is meant to be in our family. And then soon as we got her, she was very anxious and, you know, not to get graphic, but a lot of diarrhea, a lot of anxiety, a lot of needing like to sleep real near us, you know, like a lot of attachment stuff, you know, in a dog. And soon enough, you know, in like a few months, she got her rhythm. And if you took her in a car, like she would have a panic attack, a dog panic attack. Like she would hack up and she would, she would actually throw up like in panic, like a miniature version of my kids. (laughs) And I just kind of joked like, oh my gosh, I can't even get a dog that's not anxious, right? She's very traumatized. And my husband and I, my husband was alive at the time, obviously, we really are not social beings. I mean, I've learned since he's passed away this past February that I need to like create more support and friendships because now that he's gone, but we had nobody coming to our house. I mean, I didn't realize how isolated we were until he left or he died. Ruby got very used to just the five of us. Like nobody came into our house. Eventually we stopped taking her for walks because she would get really anxious when she would see another human being or when she'd see another dog, she'd bark. My social anxiety would get triggered and I'd pick her up because I didn't want her to, you know, upset the other people walking. And so eventually I stopped walking her and She lived in our house in our backyard. She's a really tiny chihuahua, so she had plenty of space to run around. 
but she was very isolated. And I always felt like that's her personality. And so if somebody came to our house, like we don't have any family here. So if somebody came to our house, like they flew in for a trip, which was rare, but maybe once a year, she would bark at them, growl at them. And it would actually kind of ruin the trip because they would be like afraid of her the entire time. And then we had to keep her in the bedroom. It was like a hassle. And so I just thought that's her. That wasn't us. That's her. And so whenever somebody would come to the house, you know, we'd pick her up or whenever someone would try to talk to her, I'd say, don't talk to her. Don't look at her. She doesn't like that. So I would preemptively protect her. All right. You see where this is going now. Then my husband dies and he was a special agent and the government has your back when one of theirs dies. And my house was swarming with people who I didn't know who were trying to help, which I greatly appreciate. I was overwhelmed, but I greatly appreciate it. So we had a lot of strangers coming in and out of the house and I was developing new friendships. Slowly, I'd start to train her and I'd give her like, a, I would give people who would come in a treat to give her like, cause it was just survival. Like I can't have her, you know, biting and barking at people. I'm overwhelmed. I'm dealing with grief. It's too much. And so we just kept like treats by the door and Pavlovian. Anytime someone was new and they came in, they just gave them, gave her a treat. And then she was okay. She was like a little tentative, but she was okay. Now fast forward a year. Cause it's been a almost, it's been more than a full year now since that happened, since my husband passed away and she's fine. We had like a stranger come and work on something in the house. What was, I don't even know what that was. Oh, they were coming in to look to paint my daughter's room who wants it bright yellow instead of the gray that I painted it when she was a baby. There's this beautiful like cherry blossom, like vinyl tree, like on her entire one wall. It's gorgeous, but it's been there since she's a baby. So she wants it bright yellow and gray, which is fine. So this guy comes in and I forgot to give her treats and I forget to tell him to not talk to her. And I I, he's bending down to try to pet her. And I'm about to say, don't, don't pet her. And I, I stop for a second and I look and Ruby's fine. Ruby allows him to pet her. And I realize that I have preemptively been rescuing her for the past, I don't know, we've had her for, I think four years. <laughs> it's been a really long time. And in one year, I've undone what I did inadvertently. She needed to be able to handle those feelings and work through them. Now, my kids are my, not my dog and my dog is not my kids and my dog is not your kids, but it's an interesting story. It's like a very behavioral experiment to see like what happens when we prematurely rescue our kids. And so that's what I wanted to talk to you about today, because I know I am guilty of thinking oh my gosh, that's going to trigger my son. And so like he had one of his OCD themes is he feels like things are going to get stuck in his head. And so I know preemptively I have said to like my daughter, stop singing, right? He's going to, that's going to upset him without giving him an opportunity to learn how to tolerate that and not control the environment, but to learn how to sit and tolerate that. When my youngest daughter was going to kindergarten, I was 110% sure she was going to completely fail, which sounds horrible. But I was, I was very, very concerned about it because she was such an anxious preschooler. She was such an anxious toddler and she was barely hanging on in preschool. And she was in this like utopian Montessori preschool. And she had to wear like a little, she was the weirdest kid. She had to wear a little bowler hat and 
Now she says she just liked it because it was stylish. But back then I would say, you don't have to wear your little hat. And she would say, I do, mommy. Like it like protected her. It made her feel kind of partially invisible. So she had a lot of social anxiety in preschool. And I was like, how is she going to go from that environment to public school full time? And so I, you know, preemptively went and talked to the school and I wanted, I said, do you guys have a school psychologist or a school counselor? And I went and talked to the kindergarten teacher before it was even like meet the teacher night. And I said, you know, she's got a lot of these issues and this is what might show up and da, 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 da. And I even like blocked out my whole day, the day, the first day that I was going to drop her off because I anticipated that she wouldn't go in and I might be called or whatever. So we get to the gate. I've done all this work, not saying that that's necessarily bad, but that was my mindset, right? And we get to the gate and she goes, okay, mommy, this is, I said goodbye to you here. And she was fine. She ran off and she was fine. And so I was actually over anticipating and preparing to over rescue without really understanding that she didn't necessarily need that. I've done that in other areas too, where I think maybe they're getting claustrophobic, or I think that the food is triggering, or I think that they need to have their food cut up in smaller pieces, or I think that they're not going to be able to handle it because there's no bathroom there. And so I have to come up with a plan. So that's going to be very different. Those are different examples than maybe what's going on in your world. But I want you to kind of pause and think, when do I swoop in and rescue before my child even shows any signs of distress? And you might argue, well, Natasha, why, why should I allow them to feel that distress when I know it's coming? Which is a gift, right? If you're that tuned into your child, which I am, because anxiety and OCD, you know, it's highly genetic and the apple doesn't fall far, I always say, from the genetic tree. And a lot of us are anxious ourselves. And one of the superpowers of being anxious is to be more in tune. So there is a little silver lining gift that comes parentally for us is that we are in tune. I can tell you a mile away when my kids are anxious and I can even feel some precipitating anxiety. Maybe even before it's on their radar, I can feel it, which really revs me up. But if we don't let them experience the discomfort or experience the opportunity in that moment to maybe power through or maybe fall flat, if we don't give them that little space that we're rescuing them from, there's no learning opportunity. Just imagine it this way. Imagine you're trying to teach your child how to walk. And every time your little, you know, tumbly toddler takes a few steps, as soon as they start to wiggle and lose their balance, you swoop in and you reset them, you stabilize them, and they start to walk again. Oh, and then they're starting to wobble. They're moving a little bit too far to their left. They're about to tilt over. You hold their shoulders, you reset them, and they start to walk again. What's going to happen? Your child is going to actually learn how to walk slower than a child who's allowed to fall, get back up, and learn from that wobble, right? We learn from the wobbles, metaphorically. Same thing with like learning how to ride your bike, right? If I'm constantly holding the back of your bike so that you can feel balanced, and every time I let go and there's a little bit of a wobble, I grab it again and I reset it. I actually might make you fall for starters because I'm going to be messing with your bike, but you're never going to learn how to feel what it feels like to be out of balance, to be, you know, 
uncomfortable and to learn how to reset or recalibrate yourself. And our kids need to experience the imbalance, the discomfort, or the the need to recalibrate so that they can autocorrect, right? Does that make sense? I mean, I think intellectually it does make sense, but a lot of us can't stand to see our kids in pain. And so we have to do our own work. If we can't stand to see our kids in pain, we have to ask ourselves, what is that about? And often the answer is not about our kids, but it's about us. And doing our own work, and I've been talking a lot about this lately because I did a whole free self-care series and we talked so much about this and it kind of spurred on a couple of podcast episodes. Last week, we talked about detachment, lovingly detach. And I actually think this is a great follow-up from that episode. And partly, I have so many episodes on how to help your children directly. I mean, you can go to my website at atparentingsurvival.com, go all the way to the bottom, go to the search button, and literally any topic, any like very black and white topic, emetophobia, you know, contamination, intrusive thoughts, symmetry OCD, separation anxiety, sleep struggles, nightmares, moral OCD, like whatever just blanket topic you want to talk about. I have already done a podcast on, and I like talking about you because that is something you have more control over. And so I do, these are my favorite topics, these episodes where I'm not, this is a deeper dive. I'm not educating you on just like something simple. I'm educating you on something that's a little bit more ambiguous, but so much more powerful. And so when you ask yourself, why do I need to rescue my child? What is that about? That is the holy grail. Because if you can figure that out, then you can do some self-work. For me, there are some examples. I guess it's different. And this is, I'm going to walk you through my stuff so that you can walk yourself through your stuff because it will be different, but you might be like, I don't know. I don't even understand what she's talking about. Let me explain. Okay. So when my kids have to get their blood taken, which is a lot of the time because my daughter has celiac, my son has Hashimoto's. So you're looking at at least once a year blood draws for both kids. Not fun when one of them always throws up 100% of the time, quasi passes out. My 18 year old, when she gets her blood taken, she did pass out and she had one of those like weird seizure like behaviors, you know, where her eyes rolled back behind her head. Okay, so that was very upsetting and freaky. And then my son, who just panics, he, one of his core phobias is needles and being poked. And so getting his blood drawn is like eh, his worst nightmare. So when we have to get blood drawn, I used to avoid it. I would have my husband take them and I will, I will try to rescue them before they even have to experience it. I will try to see if we can avoid getting the blood drawn. I will call the doctors and see if it's really necessary. I will see if we can maybe have them do a lot of the blood work together. Now there is still really no, there's nothing bad about that, but I'm not using this as an example of premature rescuing. I'm actually using this as an example to show you my stuff. Their discomfort upsets me. And it upsets me because when we're in the waiting room or when we're in the lab, my social anxiety is triggered because I am worried that my child is going to do something that's out of control and it will be embarrassing. I mean, really? And it took me a little while to figure that out because I would just have like this really panicky feeling in me when I would have to deal with their anxiety around getting a blood taken, blood taken or getting a shot. And I realized it's my social anxiety. I'm worried, you know, 
like when my daughter passed out, that was, that was, it was overwhelming, but it was also embarrassing. Now I know that sounds stupid because one, I've really done a lot of work on my social anxiety. So I don't think it's as overwhelming, but I mean, she was all over the floor. They had to call in a couple of people, like my daughter's throwing up. So that's one of my triggers. But you also, one of your triggers might be that you can't see your child in pain because to you, if your child's in pain, maybe you're in pain. So just like last episode, we have to talk about disengaging, grounding techniques, resetting, removing yourself. When my kids are bullied or they are, they have social anxiety, they feel excluded or they feel like they're going to be judged or criticized. That's a huge trigger for me because I can feel their pain on a deeper level because I know what that feels like. And so I will preemptively, this is actually another really good example. I over micromanage their social interactions. I do because I want to preemptively prevent kids from not liking them. So I might say, don't say that, or don't look like that, or do this, or don't do that. Or, you know, they're young and they're just experiencing, you know, social media, not like they're on social media, but they are texting their friends now. And I told them you're, and this is my parenting. You parent your way. This is just how I parent. I say, if it's digital, then it's not private because it's not private to the world. And so it's not private to me. And so anything that you write on the, in the internets, you know, of the, in the cyber world, if you do that, if you put it in writing, then I'm going to see it too. So I do read their texts and then I micromanage their communication you know, you're texting your friend too much and they're not texting you back and you might want to not be so needy. And that's me trying to prematurely rescue a friendship. Now, yeah, I might be right because I can see the writing on the wall when someone, you know, my kids are being too needy or when they're being a little inappropriate or they're being too bossy. Like I can see that. And when it's in text, it's even worse, right? But some of it I have to let go. Some of it I have to let my kids just experience their natural consequences. And in that area, I have the hardest time because I know the pain. And so for that one, for, for me, it's because I don't want them to experience the pain that I experienced. So how often are you rescuing your kids? Because you don't want them to experience the pain that you experienced, or you don't want them to experience any pain. Maybe you feel so much. Maybe you're such an empath yourself. You're such a big sponge of emotion that any pain your child experiences is a pain that you experience. And so that separation is important too. And so what I have had to do, and this is still a work in progress because I mean, I'm, I just made mistakes yesterday on this. I still was reading stuff and I'm like, ugh, you need to not text her so much. <laughs> so I can't stop, but I'm, I'm working on it. And this is part of the thing is I wanted to, I want to share these messy parenting experiences that I'm having to let you know that I'm not preaching, to let you know that I am in it with you and I struggle with these things myself and that these concepts that I that I teach and that I talk about in my podcast is it's easier said than done, right? But it's intention. It's like I get that this is my intention and this is what I'm aiming for. I don't want to prematurely rescue and real life is going to be messier than that. And that's just reality and that's okay. But if we don't even know that that should be our intention, if we think that rescuing our kids prematurely is a good thing, then we're never going to work on it because we think that, you know, my child never experiences any problems because, you know, I always make sure that 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 road is paved. And if if I see a bump coming down the road, I like run ahead and I 
get my little like cement machine car thingy. That made no sense, I know. And I flatten it out and I make sure that the road is smooth again. But what we're doing is we're giving our kids a false sense of smoothness. So when my child is actually in the real world and they're driving their own car and I'm not looking four steps ahead to see if there's any bumps in the road, my child's not going to know what to do with the bump. They're going to see a bump and they're going to go, well, what the heck is that? I've never seen one of those. Like my road, my, my road has been smooth and it hadn't been. You've just been paving it ahead of them. And then your child's not going to know how to navigate around it. It's going to be the tiniest bump in the world. And they're going to be like, can I drive on top of that? Should I pull all over? Now I'm just not even going to move. I'm going to just get my car completely off the road. And I've seen that happen time and time again in my therapy practice where parents swooped in, protected the kids, over micromanaged their social interactions. I'm not guilty of that. Like I've seen parents swoop in and, you know, the kids are having a little tiff or whatever. And the parent is swooping in and talking to the other child or talking to the other parent way sooner than they really should. Or the kids are way too old for a parent to be really interjecting in kind of a normal squibble. There are times, I don't know if squibble is a word, but <laughs> there are times where you do have to intervene. So I'm not saying nothing is black and white, right? It, it always just depends on the situation, but I'm trying to give you a flavor of what I'm talking about. Our kids have to learn how to build up their own muscles. They have to see that bump in the road and go, oh, I've, I've seen these bumps before and I can ride on top of them and I can be okay. It's going to be a bumpy road, but it will, it'll be fine. And so I'm going to just keep on riding. That's what I do. We don't want our kids to have that fight, flight, or freeze when they see a bump because they have never experienced anything because we have prematurely rescued them from everything. And they don't even have the awareness or the choice or opportunity to not have you do that. They don't know that you're doing it and they don't have a say in it. Isn't it much better if we allow our kids to sometimes feel a trigger or feel anxiety and then in that moment, get to decide, what am I going to do with this? Do I want to use my skills and face my fears? Do I want to sit in discomfort? Do I want to panic? Do I want, and even if they panic, even if they hyperventilate, even if it's a horrible, complete mess, you're giving them the opportunity to learn how to navigate through that. You're not going to always be there when they have those panics and they need to learn skills on how do I get through the worst case scenario? How do I get through a complete panic? How do I get through hyperventilating because that even in itself is a lesson. It wasn't pleasant and it wasn't fun, but you know what? You got through it and you survived and you will survive again when you have those experiences. And the longer you have those and the more experiences you have, the easier it will be to learn how to reset and ground yourself and self-regulate. If our kids never have an opportunity to self-regulate because we rescue them before they need to, or we over co-regulate where we're not giving them any wiggle room to self-soothe, then our kids won't have that independence to be able to feel empowered and have the self-efficacy to say, I can do this myself. Um, Even if the skill is to reach out to certain people, it's still something that they are initiating and we're not spearheading. Independence is so key. And so a lot of times when I want to rescue my kids. And for me, I would have to say on the emotional scale, it's mainly around social situations and it might be completely different for you. So think, think to yourself right now, 
When do I feel like prematurely rescuing them the most? Is it for everything? Is it for certain things that tend to really make it hard for you? Is it in certain situations? Just think about that for a second, because I don't think we take enough time to really look inward and say, what am I doing? Not that you're causing things, but we do have control over our reactions and our interactions and our behavior. And I know for me, the social stuff is, is my rescuing struggle that I will prematurely rescue my kids unless I like really work hard on it. And so what I say to myself, and this might be helpful, it may not be, you might have to come up with your own thing, but I believe that these experiences will make them stronger in the end. And so I kind of go back to myself sometimes and I say, look, Natasha, you had a, you had like not the best childhood. You didn't even have parents who knew you had anxiety. You know, I had a dad who had bipolar with psychosis, a lot of suicide attempts. My parents were a walking tornado and I was not on anyone's radar and I was really struggling. I had a lot of anxiety that was unrecognized by anyone in my family because there were way too many bigger fires going on than little old me. And so I had a ton of horrible social situations and I felt bullied and I felt alienated and I felt rejected and I had all these things. And I feel like I turned out okay. I look at me now and I think, doing pretty good. I've had a lot of trials and tribulations this past year, like suddenly losing my husband and, you know, raising three kids with anxiety and OCD. And, and I'm, I feel like I'm pretty resilient and I feel like I'm resilient. I mean, my eye might twitch sometimes, (laughs) you know, but I'm still here. And I feel like part of the reason why I'm so resilient is because I had so many bumps that I had to navigate when I was a kid. Now, that doesn't mean that I want to create bumps for my kids. You know, life is actually doing that for us. Thanks, life. But I am resilient. And because I have had to overcome a lot of the struggles with my anxiety when I was a child, I'm able to actually navigate through like the chaos of of what life is in general. And so I remind myself of that when I'm trying to rescue my kids or I feel really bad that they have to experience something. I remind myself that this is helping them become resilient, that there's life lessons that I don't want to rob them from and that I was given the gift of some life lessons and I don't want to, I don't want to prematurely rob them of life lessons or opportunities where they get to learn how to navigate difficult situations. It's kind of like the kid that, you know, you say, Hey, watch out, don't touch the oven. It's hot. And they have to touch it to experience it, to know, yeah, you know what? That oven is hot. And I've done that with my kids. I've said things to them like, hey, you're going to lose that friendship or, hey, you're being a little bit too much. And I have one feisty child who's like, don't tell me how to live my life. And then what I say happens. But then eventually she said to me, mom, I just need to learn these things for myself. And she's right. She doesn't want me to rescue her. She has to experience it. She has to live it in order to learn it. And maybe your kids do too. And Minus the social thing, even if it's, you know, something around OCD or you trying to, you know, not make sure that they think something's contaminated or to maybe even something out if you know that it's going to upset them or to, you know, serve them in a certain way because you know that their OCD is going to like it that way. This could be about anxiety or OCD. How many times are we preemptively creating an environment that appeases and satisfies the anxiety or OCD? 
so that we don't rock the boat and our child's road is nice and paved. That's not how they learn how to squash anxiety or OCD. It's not how they learn how to overcome and live a healthy, happy, resilient life with anxiety or OCD. So it's hard, but long-term, we are really helping our kids when we don't preemptively, prematurely rescue them from things that will upset their anxiety or OCD. So now that's not a blanket statement because you might be like, well, Natasha, my child is like, you know, suicidal or my child is, you know, in a hospital or my child is, there's always, you know, exceptions and there's always situations that warrant a different approach. But I'm speaking in generalities that in general, we want to have the intention that our global goal is to not prematurely rescue. Our global goal is to let our our metaphorical toddler waddle, you know, lose its balance, fall to the floor, and then get back up, autocorrect, and walk again. And that is hard, so hard, but long-term, incredibly helpful. So I hope that you found this episode helpful. You know, take it one step at a time. Things don't happen overnight. So even if like you're like, okay, I'm going to shift some gears, try to approach things a little bit differently, then you are ahead of the game for from most parents. So if you're finding this podcast in general helpful, please don't forget to hit a star on iTunes or Google Play or wherever you consume your podcast. If you want to take a few extra minutes to write a review, I really appreciate that. And I like to end the show reading one of them if I can find one. Let me see if anyone's written anything. I do want to say thank you to Danielle who wrote a review. For some reason, in the Apple app, it like cuts off the review. And then I try to find it other places and I can't. So sometimes like I can't read your full review. So I apologize for that. She wrote Sanity Saver. This podcast is an invaluable resource. I'm a single parent and special education teacher. The child with severe OCD and anxiety pans. Natasha's episodes have saved me more than once. Just when I think I have tried it all, I come across an episode with new ideas and tools I can use. Thank you, Natasha, for sharing your unique perspective as a therapist and parent. And four, she wrote on, but I can't read it. So I apologize for that. If anyone knows how to read more of that, send me an email because I don't know how to read the rest of that on my iPad, but that's a me problem. So thank you, Danielle, for writing that. I really appreciate it. My son has pants too. So you know that I get that and that additional struggle as well. So maybe if you write a review, I'll be reading yours next time. I hope that you find the sparkle in everything you do. And I'll talk to you again next Tuesday. Take care. Thank you for listening to the AT Parenting Survival Podcast. To get additional support raising a child with anxiety or OCD, visit Natasha's online school of on-demand classes at atparentingsurvivalschool.com. 